so what is unique or I think important uh, just as to establish the conversation uh, about the Jewish perspective of, of national mission and, um, and universal vision is the fact that we do believe in some sort of vision, some sort of plan, some sort of outline uh, for humanity. Uh, you know, I think there's a mistake that most people probably uh, in their lives kind of hold by, even though maybe not consciously, uh, and that is that our job as humans is to do the best with what we're given. Now, not to say that that's wrong, uh, but we don't necessarily zoom out and look at the quote-unquote proverbial forest and kind of deal with life's challenges and life's perspectives on an individual level. Uh, but when we open up the Jewish sources, we find a lot about a kind of uh, responsibilities on a cosmic, on a global, on certainly a national, and a certainly on, on a species-wide, uh, universal level. Uh, so I, I think just as an introduction, what's very important to realize is that we have a big picture plan. You know, we have... Uh, a, a start and an end to purpose. You know, we believe, obviously, and I think this is something that's very well established, like once you accept the idea of God, let's assume that you accept that. Right? A lot of people don't accept it. Or they accept an idea of God that's not exactly the Jewish God or the Jewish definition of God. Let's assume you do accept the, definition, the Jewish definition of God. The basic idea, one power, right? not bound by the same rules as us finite creations, right? doesn't exist in time and space, incredible intelligence, that's something we can't even wrap our heads around. Once you accept that as a given, we're assuming that that's true. Uh, the next step has to be uh, purpose. Why is that? Because we look at the world and we see sophistication. We see complexity. We see details. We see uh, purposeful creations. You know, we see 8.7 million different species and each one of them is so incredibly complex and so wonderful and so fantastic and everything's so perfect we see so much design in the world we see so much intelligence in the world once you presuppose that there's a designer well then there has to be a purpose for everything it's i think it's it's crazy to say that uh i'll get to you in a second uh that if that there, god does exist but this is all purposeless or purposefullessness or this is meaningless, right? I think that that's absolutely crazy. And the question is, okay, so what's the meaning? What's the purpose? Uh, we, we accept God. Okay, fantastic. Well, what's the purpose? What's it all about? The, you know, we, we, we get sometimes caught up with our lives and our jobs and our careers and our families and all the things that are happening in the news and, uh, you know, people we meet and our friends and their social circles. And, we, you know, that's, that's all very important. I'm not... I'm not trying to, we're not trying to, of course that's important, that, that's life. But every once in a while we should hopefully ask ourselves the question, okay, so what's it all about? Uh, I failed to comprehend the reason why mosquitoes <laughs> Okay, well that's, that's a good question. Uh, there's a, a great midrash about, uh, about Teen David. Uh, Teen David, he, he, as a prophet, so he told God, he's like, I, I get everything, every, everything, besides for spiders. That's the one thing he couldn't wrap his head around. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> uh, so, the Almighty tells him, it's okay, you'll see. You'll see. And then we know 
David, uh, in the beginning of his reign as king, so he was king, but in fact there was a different person on the throne, and a different person as the monarch, and that would be none other than Saul. David's the king, but only like God and Samuel, and only they recognize it. It's not recognized by anyone. And Saul undertakes this pursuit of David. And he sends all his people and his armies and his generals, everyone to try to find David. And if you read the book of Samuel, you, know, you find a little bit about the stories of how David's trying to evade capture and execution in the hands of, uh, of Saul and Saul's men. Like Saul tells them, listen, you know, whoever wants to marry my daughter, I want, you know, David, you can marry my daughter. Fantastic. But I want you to bring me a hundred foreskins of the Philistines with the hopes that he'll try to kill the Philistines and then, you know, what will happen? Try to kill a hundred Philistine, uh, Philistines and, you know, you'll probably die. And David comes back with 200. Is that where he tricks them into uh, doing circumcision and then kills all of them? Uh, well, that would be uh, Jacob's kids. Yeah. yeah. Jacob's uh, Shimon lady. Either way, that's what uh, that's what uh, what David uh, what David was undergoing. Uh, now there was one time where David is hiding in. Uh, he's running away, and there's this uh, an area, I guess, a, and there's a cave, and he runs into the cave to hide in the cave, and then a spider comes and creates this web on top of the cave entrance, and then when when Saul's when Saul's people passed by the cave said, oh, it's clearly that David didn't go in here because we just saw David five minutes ago and there's already a whole complex net of, of, a, of a spider's web, cobweb covering that must be he didn't, get, he didn't go in there. And that's as somebody says to David, oh, that's why I created spiders. Uh, so yeah, but to answer your question, uh, we don't know the details of everything. You know, I think it's, it's foolish to assume that we uh, as humans... Uh, can really understand every detail about why God does what he does. Um, however, we have the Torah. You know, the Torah is God's method of communication to us as to what he wants us to know. And in the Torah we also find he tells us about purpose and about meaning uh, for life. Uh, and, and therefore we do have some sort of insight as to the big, big, big picture. Okay, so how's that for introduction? We're good? Okay, uh, next. Chosen people. Uh, a terminology that all of us are probably familiar with. Is that right? Anyone, anyone knows where that's from? Where, where's the term chosen people from? After where? After where? Sinai, right? After Sinai? What does it say? I, you know what? I don't think I don't think that there is a source in Jewish literature about chosen people. I don't believe that there is. Uh, there's other you know, like it's you like, said after Sinai. Like after Sinai, it says that we will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in Scripture, it talks about us being the light unto the nations. The we light fu- unto the nations. That's where. Yeah. Well. Yes. Yeah. Maybe but the word chosen is coming. But either way, I think it could be very unsettling. Like. Uh, when I say we're chosen, what does that imply about everyone else? Nobody else is. Nobody else is chosen. Is that right? Yeah. Doesn't that sound a little arrogant? You know, and, and what does it even mean to be chosen? We're chosen 
to do what? We're chosen by whom? We're cho- we're cho- why were we chosen? We just we won the God lottery. We're his chosen. Everyone else, eh? It doesn't matter. Didn't really care. Well, you know. To Okay, so, okay, that's good. So it's we just we wear receptacles of the Torah. Is that is that where it ends? That's what starts and ends. <laughs> no. Of reading the Torah. I, I agree. I, I with there is seemingly something very special. I think we could point, you know, historically the fact that, you know, we seem to be an anomaly in history. We're in, you know, we're always small a nation. We're always hated, and we always still survive, no matter what what is done to us, no matter what atrocities done to us. We seem to always regroup. And reestablish ourselves after a couple of years. Is that because we're chosen, or is that I don't know. I just it means it seems there's something different and special about us. You know, I'm saying even if you disregard what we as Jews say about Jews, we look at just the facts that are undeniable. There is something option? special, perhaps. Do we have an option to be chosen, chosen or, not? or not? I don't have an option. You have an option? I don't remember I, opting in. Well, I don't know. I think maybe. Oh, now as Jews, we know we cannot I mean, opt out. In the beginning, Jews said, hey, well, 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 we don't want to prescribe to this. Keep yeah, when did, when did we opt in even? Who opted in oh, for us? How much, how much of that Judaism was maintained by obedience? Is this all the fault? promises were given with, well, if you keep obeying me. Well, then what? How, how much of that is... But does it ever say if you if you does it ever say if you disobey me you're done? It doesn't no. say that. No. It says if you disobey me, I will destroy you and obliterate you, and just there'll be little crumbs left. But there'll always be something left, you know. And you're still chosen, and you're chosen specifically, which is another interesting thing. We're chosen, yet you look at the at the Torah and what it talks about us. It's it it is very harsh terms about you know the you know what what is, what's the nature of this agreement. You know, we're chosen clearly not for riches or for might or for uh, or for you know massive numbers and population. Well, what are we chosen for? And you know, and how does this all fit together? Well, it's, it's a term we're familiar with. And you know, what what does it mean? Like you know, a lot of other nations say that they're chosen. You know, the J- Japanese flag is a big red ball because we're all the way east, and the sun comes to us first. And screw you guys. <laughs> You know, so are they chosen for something else? We're chosen for something else. You know, we're, we have our thing we're chosen for. We, they have their thing they're chosen for. Isn't there a midrash that talks about the giving of the Torah and, and that God took it to all the nations yeah. and told each nation, they, they, and they, they, they said, no, 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 hey, you can't slap people with fishes. Whoa, well, you know, that's how we make a living. We slap people with fishes. Well, you know, you can't murder. Ah, we murder for a living. We can't do that. So forget it. We don't want it. And then he took it to Jewish people, and they said, "Hey, you want this?" And he says, "We will do." And then we will hear. Naseh and Yishma. Okay, so that's where where so, where we our forefathers let's assume our forefathers accepted upon themselves to do the Torah. Right. Let's hold that thought. A very, very, very powerful thought. So that Maybe means, that's when we everyone was given the option, and we were means we weren't necessarily chosen by God. We were the ones who opted in. We chose, so to speak. We chose. We chose. We were the ones that signed up. Yeah. And we said, we, we said, right. we, 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 you but know. to be chosen, doesn't Isaiah talk about that? What it is in the revelation of being chosen will one day be revealed. And isn't it in Isaiah that tells us what that is? Although it means. It, well, it but I, I think that, you know, we don't have to. I think that's also a narrow perspective. Like, we're Jews. We have a Torah you mentioned, we accepted the Torah. We have a special relationship with the Almighty. You know, we're, we, we're a nation that butts a lot of historical trends. But what's the big picture? What's it all about? What is the Jewish people's role in the universe, in history? It's to bring the restoration of the world, right? Ooh, booyah. 
bring the restoration of the world. Nice. Well, there's just the destruction of the world, not the restoration. It's the floors talking. Yeah. Hold on, let me do my thing. Dennis, go ahead. What were you were saying? Oh, no, no. My question would be about who did the choosing? I have another good question, which which shows in by what for what. Okay, so let 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 let's keep all these questions in mind. Like we said something very very powerful thought you said. Um, so I want to I want to I want to share with you guys another a third element, a third a little introduction that I think is going to really open up this can of worms or this can of not worms we don't eat worms this can of pickled fish <laughs> this can of pickles. Uh, so we find who here is familiar with the idea of a six thousand year world. You know that? Have you heard that? We might have talked about it. Okay, so so there's this idea of a six thousand year world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where does that come from? That comes from the Talmud. Uh, the Talmud says as follows: uh, They taught in the Academy of Elijah, which is, by the way, a normal introduction of a Talmud, where it would give you the source material. Where was this teaching, you know, uh, uh, publicized? So it was in a Academy of of Torah scholarship of Elijah, okay. Uh, and it says as follows, well, what they teach, 6,000 years is the world. The world is 6,000 years. 2,000 years, chaos. 2,000 years, Torah. 2,000 years, Messiah. What this is telling us is, big picture, the plan and the history of the world. It's a six thousand year world, um, and and it's broken down into you know to three parts. There's the first part called chaos, next part called Torah, and third part called Messiah. Which, by the way, should tell us the Messiah is not just an individual. Messiah is a two thousand year process of sorts. But I, I think that these uh, three sections are three different steps, three different elements in the ultimate purpose of the world. That is. Uh, and let's start with number one, chaos. What does chaos mean? Very bad things. Disorder. No. Disorder. Destruction. Destruction. This is very bad. It's a very bad term. In fact, the word that's used in Hebrew is tohu. And tohu is the word that we use in Hebrew to describe the state of the universe at its nascent, most nascent stages. Where there's really essentially like almost no form. There's no. There's no. There's no life. There's no nothing. You know, it's just it's chaos. It's chaotic, um, essentially. Like if you were to just isolate what it was like, you know, a second after the Big Bang, you know, it's chaos. You know, uh, scientifically, right? Uh, that's the same word that's used to describe. It. There's some. There's some disorder, uh, and then we have Torah. And Torah is Torah. What the, the Torah scroll we we hold in the synagogue, right? So that's what Torah is, right? The Messiah, we think of as Messiah as this, this, this great individual, this powerful leader that's going to affect tremendous change in the world. What, what are these three stages? So, uh, we're told uh, that they have tikkun olam. So what's, what's tikkun olam? What do the words tikkun olam mean? The world to come. Uh, this no. world. No, 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 no. Tikkun olam. Fixing the world. Yeah, exactly. Correction. Right. Now, this is a term that has been publicized, gotten very popular lately, uh, the past 50 years. Uh, I, why? I don't know. It's one of the great mysteries of, of 20th century 
jewelry as to why this terminology has become like a credo uh, for, for the Jewish people. Uh, when in fact, the first time we find these words of Tikkun Olam is more than 3,000 years ago. Uh, and in fact, in the Mishnah, which is 2,000 years old, we find Tikkun Olam, an entire chapter talking about Tikkun Olam. But what does it mean, Tikkun Olam? What are the words? It means fixing the world. What does it tell us about the world? It's broken. It's broken. Now, what happens when you buy something that's broken and you want a refund? <laughs> what are the terms of the warranty? Yeah. How much time? What, what, what what, what what it's not necessarily broken, but just unrefined. Kind of in a raw state. Well, to means to fix. Imperfect? It was not broken at some point, and then something broke. What if it wasn't? Well, it was was even first. Well, maybe it was broken broken by design. Maybe it was chaotic by design. And you know what? If you look around, where is all that chaos? I don't see any chaos. You know, your body works perfectly well, hopefully, right? Most people. You know, the, uh, the, uh, the ecosystem works very, very well. You know, there's a small sliver of temperature where human life, essentially life, is, is possible. And we're right there, you know, where it's actually 93 million miles, change, plus or minus, uh, away from the sun, perfectly designed how to survive. A little closer, a little further away, we're either toast or frozen popsicles. You know, there's liquid water. Like, the world seems to be very organized. You know, it's, it's a world that's capable of, 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 of habitation. It's, everything is so balanced and everything's so perfect. What, what's broken about the world? You know? And why will we get a broken world if the Almighty does everything perfectly? It wasn't broken to begin with. It yeah, got it broke with Adam's sin, right? Who says that? Who's I Adam? Thought, I thought it was actually <laughs> Yeah, didn't they talk about the vessels breaking? Yeah, the and it sparks of life. No, the Talmud doesn't say anything about sparks of life. Now you're talking about... You, the, yes, yeah, you may have heard some Zohar or something like that. <laughs> no sparks of life in the, uh, the Talmud. Wrong book. Wrong but, book. Uh, like, it doesn't talk about the... Uh, Adam, what happened with Adam is a very interesting uh, part of this discussion. So but let's, uh, we, we, which is interesting, by the way. If you notice, I said 6,000 years. If you ask scientists how old the world is... They'll give you a number uh, that's around 13.8 billion years. A minor discrepancy, but you know what's a few billion among friends, except, right? Except, except. So what's important to realize is, huh? Sorry. Except on the edge of the universe. You're giving an answer, uh, but the, the the true answer. Did the calculation of life. The, the true answer is that this six thousand years, this thousand year clock starts. From after the first week. Is in the universe. From after the first week or from after Adam's creation? No, after the first week. They started counting after Adam, right? That's right. So what happened before that is not part of our calculation, which is a very interesting to point out because... No, after the first week or after Adam? After the first week. But Adam, when was it? Fourth day. Sixth day. Sixth day. I was like, what are you talking about? I don't know how old the earth is. <laughs> now, on the fourth day is where we meet the, the sun and the stars and the con- all the constellations, which is... So you can't have days? We, or we, we, you could have days. We don't know what that means. Well, that was the third. That was the day fourth. Fourth was the was animals. No, fifth was animals. But yeah, fifth was animals. Fourth was, fifth was some animals. Fourth was well. the plants. Third was the water. Uh, fourth was day, animals. Day Separation of the water. Either way, Adam appears in day six. <laughs> and Adam, in fact, is the last one. By the way, why is Adam the last... Well, the last... 
Uh, why is humanity the last that's created? Who knows? Huh? Save the best for last. Save the best for last. <laughs> well, we had to keep what was really take care of it. Before, uh, before the environment shop was with Adam. Seven, so, so he uh, it would be an awful Adam lot of empty space without a man. Wasted you know, space. <laughs> no, but if man's most important, man, maybe man should be on day four or day two. Save the best for last. That's right. So well, Talmud gives two answers. Last, so Talmud asks the question, and he gives two answers. One answer is your question. Is your answer that is that essentially man is the purpose of all. Thus, you create the arena, and then you bring in the the your future presentation. Um, that's number one. And number two, very interesting. Back to the mosquitoes that someone mentioned. That uh, it says that if someone gets haughty, if a man gets haughty, you tell him the the mosquito was created before you. The Yitush, which is a fly. The fly was created before you. Thus, you kind of make us realize that we're not, we're, we're, we're not so significant. You know, to, cry, you know, to hone us, you know, to, 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 you know, to mitigate our, our tendency for, for arrogance. Interestingly. So, but our 6,000-year clock only begins from after that week. Uh, thus, essentially, from after Adam's and that whole fiasco, whatever happened there. Uh, Adam is, is not the same kind of human that we are. It's not. But you mentioned, did God give us the perfect world or the imperfect world? I'm, that was my question. I said, we, you, we were talking about fixing the world. That implies that it's broken. Well, but we're, first of all, what's broken? If you believe in a 6,000-year world, then obviously it was the chaos. Didn't it say somewhere, it's I just have heard this around, that the world was created 13 times before perfection? That's Kabbalistic. Oh, that's okay. No, it does, it does mention somewhere that uh, we well, went through this. We were trying to find that source. It's there somewhere. That uh, yeah. Either way, th- these that these are like a, the, you know advanced questions, yeah, uh, and I, I don't think it's so relevant to us. You know, okay. we're dealing with this world, and this world is a six thousand year world, which starts after Adam, and it's broken, and we can't figure out why it's broken. And you guys are trying to evade the question. We have a broken world. We have a broken world. Everyone agrees with a broken world. Who's what's uh, Eden? I don't know what Eden, Eden is. Where do I find it? <laughs> That's all from Adam's time. I don't want to hear about Eden or Ganadin or anything like that. What happens when we die? What? But who says who says who says it got broken? I mean, are you saying that if it was if it's a broken world, that implies that at one point it was not broken? Yes. Mm. Yeah. It's not broken. It's not possible to deliberately create something that's broken. But it's not broken. Possible. Why not? God, God created it perfectly, but in order for us to be a part of that creation. Our job is to create and reveal the light of God within everything around us. So God hid himself within everything around us so we can reveal God by doing mitzvot and things of that nature. So we help bring out the light of God in everything that's out there. So it's a matter of raising or elevating those things within the world to, to, to bring back that light to reflect God again in, in, in its perfection. That was deep. That was good. And I think that you you underscored something very very important. Even though you you were kind of you were focusing on the, on the other half. That you know, there's only one thing, one entity that is is real. That is that it that has any intrinsic value. This is you start off Maimonides, the first first word of Maimonides. He kind of separates everything into two categories. One is God, and one is not God. 
and anything like God is not dependent, contingent, reliant on anything else. And everything else from the entire world itself, the entire universe, uh, animate, inanimate things, angels, spiritual things, physical things, humans, everything is contingent on God. So where does this? Where does that say this? Where is that word? Well, I said that's that quoted that from Maimonides. Maimonides is is the unquestioned authority on defining Jewish philosophy. Uh, where he got it from, it's probably a collection of different sources, Jewish sources. Um, but that's not such a hard thing to find. The idea of everything dependent on God and God having total control, well, that's the definition well, no, of God. I don't, I don't yeah, I, 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 I said I quoted it from... Yeah, so uh, if, if, if God is the only value that has intrinsic value, it's obviously the, that is the most important ideal around. Yet, we live in a world where the idea of God can be ignored entirely. It's possible for someone to spend their entire life living in the world, right, enjoying the world, and not even realizing the force, the entity that is behind it all. And that's the one important piece of information, the one, more, the one important thing, right, that they, that they, that they, just, they just miss it. They live their entire, their entire lives. You know? It's as if, I would say, it's as if that the, the artist of a fantastic painting didn't sign his name at the bottom, right? <coughs> all our, as humans, all our encounters are almost entirely physical. Right? We have our physical, we see things, we don't see God. Right? One of the definitions that we have about God is God sees but is unseen. So the most powerful uh, influencer on our perspective, on our consciousness our vision right, is incapable of perceiving God. And we can't touch God. Right? We don't, you know, that's, idolatry is all about trying to change that, uh, that paradigm. That's what idolatry is about. It's trying to take the idea of God and make it something that we can't relate to. But we know that that's idolatry. And that's essentially missing the point. Essentially, the world is designed, I would say, it's designed to enable the possibility of living your entire life without recognition, without cognition of the idea of God. You just you see it, but it's there. Oh yeah, it's I mean, there. I mean, it's our lack of our lack of awareness of of oxygen doesn't make it not work. Culpability, I'm not you're narrowing the point. I'm talking big picture. This is a broken world. Why is it broken? It's broken I'll get in a second, uh, uh, Dennis. Uh, it's broken because the most important, essential, fundamental, pivotal, crucial bit of information in the world, the one, essentially the one only important thing that there is, is not, it's not present. Right? It, it's, it's hidden, like you said. It's, it's, it's masked. It's, it's there. It's the, you know, our lack of, you know, the, you know even, the, even, the, even if someone is an atheist, God still exists. That doesn't change the realities, right? Well, that, 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 that the reality is the reality, right? If God exists, it's irrespective of what we think about that. But the world at large is capable of that. In fact, it's, I would say it's even designed for that, right? What, what are our urges? Right? What motivates us? Right? Everything that relates to our body, right? How we look, how much money we have, what people think of us, all these things that are in diametric opposition to God. All the physical things. All the physical things, that's right. 
That is by definition a broken world. In fact, if you start off, you start off the first 2,000 years of history, and essentially it's, it's chaos. Right? It's, why is it chaotic? What about the world is chaotic? The fact that the idea of God is incredibly distant from humanity's purview. And then we meet Abraham. And what is, what's Abraham's role in, 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 in history? In Jewish history, in world history, monotheism. Monotheism. Noah was a prophet, right? Noah has conversations with God. Adam, even Adam, after that first week, was a prophet. Uh, other people seem to, you know, Abraham. His contribution, or one of his contributions, is the discovery of faith of monotheism on his own accord. With, the own, with his own intelligence, with his own reasoning, with his own logic, with his own deduction, Abraham realized the Jewish God. Now I say the Jewish God, I mean the Jewish definition of God, which is the real definition, the reality of, of God. Uh, and that is the beginning of ending this, this darkness, so to speak, or this hiddenness, right? It's, it's the first step in fixing the world. Now, a little secret I didn't tell you guys uh, that I withheld from you uh, is that the first time where the word tikkun ulam is mentioned is in the aleinu prayer that we say at the end of at the end of at the end of the prayer, and it's the second paragraph, and we say letaken olam bemalchut shaddai, which means to fix the world with the kingdom of God. Which, by the way, if someone says, what does Tikkun Olam mean? Well, let's go to the first source. The first source says that the fixing the world with the kingdom of God. Why? Because that is precisely the area in which the world is broken. That the kingdom of God is not present everywhere. It's not, it's, it's not ubiquitous. Abraham is the one who's going to introduce the idea and begin the process of undoing this. He's going to be the first one who's going to uh, start influencing others right, and disseminating the idea of the Jewish God. When was Abraham born? Anyone here knows? After Isaac. <laughs> that would be a correct statement. After Noah. Closer. Eight, eight generations after, uh, after Adam. You guys say 20 generations after Adam? I'm close. Because uh, there's 10 generations. Uh, give, or take, give or take 15. Uh, the Mishnah says that there's 20, 20 generations. Yeah, so uh, the Mishnah says that there's 10 generations from Adam to Noah, and then there's ten generations from Noah to Abraham. Abraham is born in the calendar that we're using, which starts from after the first week of creation. Uh, Abraham is born in the year 1948. It's a very convenient number to remember. 1948. That's absolutely correct. 1948. It's an easy number to remember because it's the same number. It's 100 years after Karl Marx published... um, the Communist Manifesto. Easy to remember. <laughs> Rohat and Rohat on the door. Right in there. Uh, so, and we know that a- Abram had some time in which he started his process of, you know, obviously as a baby, he grew up in a family of pagans. He grew up in a community of pagans. He grew up in a, in a world of pagans. His father was an idol maker. That's exactly right. 
You know, in father of the local uh, idol shop, idol incorporated. Uh, and we know also that Abraham is the first person to study Torah. You guys know that? Abraham is the first person to study Torah. We have the Midrash that says, Abraham uh, lamad Torah. And in fact, he observed the Torah. And we find that Abraham actually observed, started, started studying Torah at the age of 52. Which is interesting. Observing or did he uh, start studying it? He started studying it and observing it, both. So in fact, in fact, in fact, the Midrash says that he observed even rabbinical law, which is a, one of the great mysteries. One of the great mysteries is that how would Abraham, how would he know the Torah when the Torah was not delivered to humanity until Moses appears much, much, much later, five hundred years later. That we also know the Torah preexists creation. Absolutely, that's the blueprint for creation. So it was there, it was available. It just wasn't accessible to humans. Somehow Abraham was able to access that, and how did he do that without, you know? Yeah, he maybe had a prophecy, but he didn't have that same exhaustive, comprehensive prophecy that Moses had. So Moses had this comprehensive, like forty years of unending prophecy to get the entire Torah. Abraham underwent an entirely different process in in, in discovering Torah, which is fascinating. We'll actually we'll go through it a little quickly here. That's the same with all the right? Well, once Abraham had it, then he taught it to Isaac and Jacob. So what about yes. <laughs> what about Get it uh, out of thumb drive. I mean, oh. <laughs> how do you know, like for example, what animals are clean or and unclean? I mean, besides the guy telling him, but that's part of the Torah. So was yeah, it, was so it like piece and pieces, or was it? Yeah, but even what's Noah, also interesting about Noah is so knew some of it. Well, but Noah also Noah he lived in the same time period as Adam. So Noah Noah's relationship with God was it's a very interesting question because Noah believed in God as well. Uh, and yet Noah's not a very he's, he's an important character in the story right. but he's not the founder of the Jewish people he's not you know well, yeah, the, I mean, I was just, I was so seen. he seemed to have had some sort of tradition uh, all the way back from the times of Adam um, but hold that thought for a second so what it says about Abraham is that he studied the entire Torah and in fact he observed the whole Torah from where did Abraham study Torah the Talmud asks and it says as follows it gives two opinions Opinion number one, me'atzmo lamad. Any Hebrew speakers here? Me'atzmo. Me'atzmo. From himself. Study from himself. Which, it's like those people that play chess against themselves. Right? <laughs> you, you switch the board. What's himself? Atzmo. Atzmo means him, his, himself. Atzma will be herself. Um, Atzmaut will be independence by yourself. Independent. Yom Ha'atzma'ut, right? Yom Right? You're, you're by yourself. <laughs> Made sense. Uh, now, that's one opinion. Other opinion is that Abraham studied Torah because his two kidneys became wellsprings from which they taught him Torah. Now, what does that mean? It seems like Abraham, Abraham underwent a process different than every other person who studied Torah. And that is that Abraham was able to have an internal uh, uh, teacher, so to speak. Uh, we know that the Torah existed, but it existed in another reality. Uh, it existed in a spiritual reality, uh, not, in a, you know, not in a reality that's physical in any way. What else do we have within ourselves 
that is a, you know that is part of this other dimension. Anyone knows? We don't have the Torah. What? The soul, exactly. The, he, Abraham didn't have a Torah from without. He had a soul. The soul, the Talmud compares the level of purity of a soul to God himself. Right? The soul is something that you can't see. You, know, it, it, you can't touch it. You can't measure it. You can't weigh it. It's not something that we can quantify in physical terms. It's, it's, it's a certain piece of this other reality, the spiritual reality that we have within ourselves. Now, so this is the secret to unpacking this. Now, therefore, Abraham was able to tap in to this reality via which he studied Torah. And in fact, we know, just to finish this thought, we know that the soul and Torah are almost synonymous. We have the famous Talmud. I may have mentioned this in a previous class. The famous Talmud that talks about a child in utero studying the entire Torah. Did I mention that? Yeah, and then when it comes out... If an angel comes, it makes him forget it. Well, make it clear, if you critically analyze that particular piece of Talmud, you'll find that what happened... How does a child know the entire Torah? It's because the child is a soul at that point, and therefore the soul innately knows the whole Torah. And then at birth, he gets the influence of the body, of the physical, and then he forgets it. But essentially, it's still there. It's just covered over by the influence of that physical. If you were able to uncover that, you could study Torah internally, from, with, from within, so to speak. Abraham, the great Abraham, he was able to do that. Thus, he was able to access the Torah way before it was delivered to us like uh, from without, so to speak. But we find that Abraham studied Torah at the age of 52, which is interesting because it's exactly at the 2,000-year mark, which we would say is perhaps the next phase of unpacking or uh, uh, un, un reversing this, this broken wall. So we start off with the broken wall. God is, is not anywhere uh, in, the, in the world. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's paganism. And then comes Abraham, and Abraham starts the process of changing it all. He breaks the chaos. He has the one, the one candle in the darkness, if you will, a part of my metaphors. Uh, he's that one force that is going to begin the process of undoing that. What's the second world called? Torah. Torah. Go ahead. I got two questions. Question number one is you said the patriarchs knew the Torah because of their soul and they practiced it. I said Abraham studied the Torah from within. He taught that to Isaac and Jacob. Yes. And they kept the... They kept the entire Torah in Israel. In Israel. So when they went to Egypt... So, like, for example... So, Jacob married two sisters outside yes. of Israel. And that's why when they... I knew your question. And that's why when they came back to Israel, right as they're about to enter Israel, right, who dies? Who dies? Who did he marry first? The second one dies. That's right. He married Leah first. Thus, Rachel is one who encroaches on this prohibition of not marrying two sisters. Thus, she's the one who has to die. Yeah, well, that's the Ramban. It's the Ramban. It's an it's not mine. Okay. Second question. Second question. Go the ahead. Calculations. Yes. Of, you said ten generations after Adam. Uh, ten generations out of Adam is Noah. Ten generations after Noah is Abraham. Right. So you look at generations. Yes. So twenty generations of so the average lifespan you're saying is about hundred. No. No, that's not how you calculate generations. The way you calculate generations, right? How how much older are you than your son? Right. Well, what, how, when did you have him? How old were you? How old were you when he was born? 
So, so is the average life 28? <laughs> that's not how you calculate. That's not. No, the average, the way you measure, just a little secret of mathematics here, the way you measure a generation is the average age of a parent at the time when their child is born. Thus, if a parent has four children, right, all the parents in the world, all the births in the world, how old are the parents? That's how you measure it. Right? It's the average age of a generation, the average age of the gap between the parent and child. Wait, so no, it's much more than 20. It's probably around 30 nowadays. Yeah, but it's but the majority. Yeah, so the so average is average. Average. Yeah, so point well, so would be 100. Is, let's say the average is 30. Like, I can't, but at that time it was 100 probably. Yeah. <laughs> we know, I look at Adam. Yeah. Well, if you read it, they're not having kids until they're 100, 200. Well, it's that's the average. Sarah is not like an exception. Yes, because there was a change. Because there was a change. That's right. Yeah. So I would not think that 100 would be the reality. Uh, So I well, because remember, Adam lived to 930, right? So yes, I I actually recently made a video on YouTube.com forward slash TorchWeb. Please go check it out on what's the secret of the longevity of of our fourth. Oh, there you go. There you go. So uh, so so I made a video. How they live so long? How do we tap into that elixir of life? There's an answer to the question of how they live so long. It, well, no, it didn't answer. It answered, what was your question? question. So that they had babies at 100. On so average, over, over 2,000 years we're talking about. It seems like from the, from the Torah, Sarah is like, well, well t- But Sarah's at the end of that. So like I said, I, answered, I did answer the question because there was a change in... God even says in the Torah, it says that, that, that God is changing the age uh, expectancy. To 120. To around 120, that's right. Yes. That age change was when? That age change was after Noah. after Noah's time. That's right. So about halfway through that twenty generations, there's a, there's a radical change in the average age. Does he say? So could that be interpreted? But that to me could be interpreted two ways. Yes. One, I'm only going to allow man to live another hundred for 120 years. That's that's a lifespan of man. Or does it mean I'm only going to let Noah, you got 120 years to build the ark. Good luck. Go at it. If these guys repent in that time, then good. No, it was after. It was after. It was after. It was after. It was after that. That's right. It was after. It was the generation of the where they built that big tower. Yeah, Tower of Babel. That's right. No, no, no. But he said to Noah. Yeah. No, he kind of said yes to build the ark, but he said I will only let men live up to 120 years after. The Tower of Babel. When? This was after Noah's. Okay, uh, we could get a book and read it, but it's afterwards. Wait. Okay, I have a quick question. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's afterwards. Yes. <laughs> so starting from his kidneys, right? Yes, I, I think uh, yes, his kidneys. So what does kidneys so, mean? No, 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 no. That's not what yeah. I'm asking. It is. Um, it, I'm asking, is it says I will only let man, let man live to immediately know everything, uh, or was it subconscious and then he he learned? I, I, I have no idea how to answer that question because this is an experience that we don't know of anyone aside from aside from uh, yeah exactly I'll, I'll find it for you give me uh, Dennis I'll find it for you um, I'll find it for you um, so yeah so I, we don't know how what the exact process is of uh, of of that uh, so, uh, what's your phrase she lived, she lived longer than even after the, that no one lives over 
don't know if anyone right. after uh, Godzilla hundred some years. So you you were saying no, that I generation was like modern an average of twenty years have long way of time. Genesis six three he said my spirit shall not strive with man for forever. There you go. Because he's also flesh, nevertheless his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There you go. So. Yeah. So, so that's the point. So, yes, yeah, six three. Uh, that's the point uh, in which, uh, in which there's some sort of radical change in life expectancy. Well, is it? But isn't that during Noah? Well, that's the, the, here's before. Here's before Noah. So I, I stand corrected. Unless, unless it, well, after the flood, it was cut. Well, here the, well, the flood, uh, we assume so. Uh, anyway, this is the, flood, no. chapter six is before is before the flood. No, it is before the flight. I just checked it. Either way, what's the uh, what's the end game here? We don't know what I was just asking about the calculation. That was my question. So let me ask you this. Yeah, go ahead. So, uh, in, uh, not to get off the topic that you're... We, we are, we are, we are, yeah. It will be a miracle if we finish before even, 11. Even before that, we see that the life expectancy of people prior to, him, you know, even God making the statement in the Torah, that he'll, he'll not contend with man forever, and expecting that it will be 120 years. You see the life expands going down. They're not, they're not extending. They're not living to 1,000 years anymore. They're, they're living to 800. They're living to 700. Living to six hundred, so you see it progressively getting worse yeah. as time goes on, right? Yeah. So I'm not. I, for me to say that then God says that's it. That's 120 years. Yes, that could be possible, but at the same time, you can say that due to the fact that we weren't living according to a Torah lifestyle because of the chaos that existed, could not that affect the lifespan of man? Absolutely. And that's why I think people, uh, the Talmud says that people die early because of their their actions chip away at their at their life potential. Exactly. Talmud says that. Um, so if anyone was born before that cannot live over 120 years. No, okay, but that, yeah, that, 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 that that's that's a that's a simplistic way to look at it. Uh, it's uh, Jacob was on 147. <laughs> Jacob died at 147, uh, and uh, Abraham lived to 175. So yes, it's clearly not meant to meant to be that it's it's a hard deadline. I would say that perhaps it was the average, you know, just just like today, eighty three is the average, even though a lot of people live to one hundred and ten, right? So how long do people live for? I'm asking you a question. How long do people live for? You say eighty three. Well, but in Congo it's like forty three, <laughs> right? But in the United States it's about eighty three. Well, what do you mean? Someone's a hundred? Not possible. That's the average. I don't know what the question is. Well, the average lifespan for male is forty. Really? Yeah. So, so I, I understand what the question is. Like, if that's that's how long people live, how long do people live? Eighty-three? Really? I find my grandmother's ninety-two. Well, then you bring in Kabbalistic. Uh, no, not Kabbalistic. I'm just saying that's the average life expectancy. No, it it doesn't mean that people cannot cannot live. Some people live beyond one hundred twenty. Well, why not? There was a guy in Japan. Where did that come from? If you got that close from the Bible, but. No, but you but you just read that that Jacob outlasted. I know. I know. Okay, so you blows your mind. Certain people, yeah. God said 120. I was like, 
Yeah, but they're oh, getting their interpretation. And then um, after that, no, no, okay. I just realized, like, this blow my mind. I'm going to call his older brother tomorrow. Oh, I'm going to be like, um, it's just enough for that. Sorry, man. I'm stressed out. Looks, I mean, like, I am. Let's go back to the subject of his. All right. Okay. okay. We were talking about Abraham. Yes. Uh, how Abraham got Torah. So that's how Abraham got Torah. Okay? He got Torah from within via the power of his soul. Can we not get also Torah within? We can, but I liken this, but it's a lot easier to get Torah from without. Like, just for example, uh, it's possible, theoretically, I know you live in a, in a subdivision, whatever, but if you were going to back, you had a back, big backyard, and no one was watching, you could th- theoretically, again, you could stick a pipe, you know, 2,000 feet under, underground and pull up some oil, bring it to your basement, refine it, and put it in your car and drive. Right, right, right. Is that possible? Sure, it's possible. Yeah. It's just significantly easier to just go to the Exxon station, right. fill up gas, right? It's well, e- it's is it possible? I'm not saying, is it possible? Okay. Yes. But I'm it's not just saying, I'm not saying that we orders of magnitude more harder. We don't get Torah the same way he, Abraham received Torah. But well, he didn't have any opposition to Torah. We get revelation internally, right? So we can read something where it goes, I don't know what this really means, and then read it again and be like, oh, I get it, God... Yeah, but remember, to Abraham, to Abraham, he had no, he had no internal resistance. We are, um, if you're human, you're going to resist the Torah. Torah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? Because the Torah is telling you to do things that you're programmed to not want to do, right? So it gives you restrictions. What do you mean? I want to do this. The soul wants to do it. And why? But the Torah is telling you no. You know, you got, you know, that 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 that's the, you know, but Abraham didn't have that because Abraham kind of. He reached the Torah when that was no longer something which is right. distant from you know who he was as an individual. But the second half of the discussion, if we ever get there, is <laughs> how this you, parallels. I thought in the Torah they said you can't fix that. Can't fix what? Didn't they say remove idolatry, remove promiscuity, and he said, yeah, we'll re- remove idolatry, but you have to have promiscuity. That's right, because you know why? If there was no, if there was yeah, no, if part. there was no urge for procreation, just like if people didn't get hungry, the only people that would not die of starvation would be the righteous people. And if, and if, uh, <laughs> and if, if people, if there was no urge uh, for uh, for promiscuity but sexuality, um, then no one would procreate. Besides, for the righteous. But to answer his question, uh, you're not supposed. You can't get rid of your evil inclination. No. So you're what, you, what you're quoting is what the Talmud talks about when the great rabbis prayed and they got they destroyed the the they destroyed the uh, the um, the um, the force or the inclination towards idolatry, and then they saw uh, a, a fire in the shape of a young lion emerged from the Holy of Holies, and they didn't know what to do with it, so they put it in a barrel full of, of lead, because it was screaming on top of his lungs, and he heard 400 parcels away, which is like miles and miles and miles away. Wait, what was And then it's... Huh? I haven't heard this part. That's what the Talmud actually said. I'm going to show it to you next time we sit in front of a Talmud. Uh, it says they put it in this barrel of lead, so what, that what wouldn't, no one would hear it. I said it quickly, so... What did they put in? They, this, this thing that emerged from the Holy of Holies when they made this prayer. Oh. And then they said, oh, once the Almighty is listening to us, let's deliver uh, as well the other thing that vexes humanity, the other inclination. And they did it, and then they went three days later, they're looking for an egg. 
they couldn't find an edge to make an omelet because all everyone will everyone stop procreating. Everyone. There wasn't a single edge anywhere. So they said, oh gosh. If we once we turn over this, then we won't have the continuation, continuity. Uh, so then they said they, that they prayed that at least the desire for incest uh, would go away. Which track is that? It's in two places. It's in Yoma and Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin, I think it's in... Uh, 60, uh, 63 no, or 64? I've, 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 I've researched track dates and they Google is really messed up with those. Um, yeah. Sanhedrin, yeah. 87A? Uh, no, Sanhedrin, I think it's 64. 63 or 64. If I was connected to the internet, I'd put the Google for you. But uh, unfortunately, you gave me a Wi Fi password. 63 or 64. It's okay, it's okay. Uh, we don't want you cheating now. Either way. <laughs> in Yoma, I think it's I think it's uh, my memory I mean, I'll, I'll tells me it's. Uh, I'll write it down so I can look at it. It's it's I think it's 160, uh, 63. <laughs> Either way, where were we? Uh, so that so, so yeah so that's that's Abraham. Let's move on to Torah. So what's Torah? No, let's stop. What's uh, what ha- what happened to Abraham? What was the one of the most momentous events in Abraham's life? Well, there's a lot of momentous events. Circumcision. So he gets a mitzvah circumcision, that must have been very which nice. is the first mitzvah in the Torah to give him to Abraham or to Abraham, right? But also, additionally, God gives him a very important prophecy. He has a challenge. He has a bunch of challenges. But then God, kind of after all of that, God gives him uh, a um, God gives him a prophecy. A, a crucial prophecy which is related to our uh, to our discussion. Oh, we're going to be slaves in Egypt. Slaves he tells him, first of all, you should know you're going to have a nation. You're going to be the father of the Jewish nation. You're going to get Israel. You're also, he, he predicated on that, you're going to have to go to slavery in Egypt, which is an interesting question. Why, why, why is that necessary uh, for, for us to go through the, uh, the pain of, of being enslaved as a prerequisite for us to be the Jewish nation? Interesting question. But that is essentially where the Jewish people are founded. And it's because of Abraham that we were chosen. It wasn't just, it's not just random coincidence that Abraham is the one who discovers God on his own and Abraham's kids coincidentally are chosen randomly. We won the lottery. Essentially, we are chosen because Abraham, our forefather, was this great individual who took on the mission of so he was given an option. Well, of course, everyone was given an option. Right? Right? Abraham on his own. So essentially, we almost we chose God more than God chose us. It wasn't just randomly that Abraham was said, "Your kids are going to be, you know, have a lot of Israel and have the responsibility of taking this mission from an individual level to a national level." Essentially, our as being the Abrahamic people. We are responsible for fulfilling the mission, the destiny of Abraham. And thus, God says, "You started it. You are an individual. This is going to become a nation, and this nation is the nation that's chosen. Why? Because you are the one who, on your own account, on your own accord, not because you were, you know, you were, you were. Uh, it could have been anyone, essentially, but you are the one who did it, and therefore your kids will be the ones who complete it." Thus, it's not random that we were chosen. Thank you. Let's move on to the next. So, what happens? What's the next section? Torah. 
Well, what is Torah? Well, what do we know about Torah? Pressure. Torah, someone mentioned, was given to the Jewish people. <laughs> you mentioned that, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so what's it given us to us for? Could we argue, perhaps, that the Torah is our national guide for Tzuchun Olam? Of course, arguable. I think exactly. It means as a nation, we are given, once we become a nation, when do we become a nation? We become a nation at Mount Sinai or at the Exodus, that entire period. Ben, would you mind closing the bathroom door? It's making me nervous. Sorry. I'm weird, I'm weird though. I have these ex- ex- eccentricities. I think my grandfather had the same ones as well. He would like know if the bathroom was open. And then under the hall, like close the bathroom. I thought my kids close the bathroom. Sorry. I don't know why. I'm weird. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So, and also, I feel like we're talking about Torah. You should have a bathroom door open, whatever. So, Torah is when we, as a nation, we have this guide that's going to help our nation be standouts in fixing the world. Now, what happens? And I want to hold that thought again because I'm going to re- re- come back to it, and you'll see the questions addressed. Or so just ask you now. Like Moses. And Moses. And, and so, so if you were to say who was the most important leader from the second of the three of the you know the tripart, it's it, it's Moses. Uh, and lastly, right, Messiah. So it's Messiah. Obviously, we know as the, as the individual Messiah, but there's also yes. Messiah. The idea if it's two thousand years, uh, and that's the ultimate completion of what was began by Abraham in undoing this process, and that is where it's not just a national prerogative of the Jewish people, but it's a global prerogative of all humanity. Whereas the, 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 uh, the, what began with Abraham is going to be universal. And in fact, for us, we live in a world, we have the gift of hindsight. We see now uh, 2,000 years, 2,000 years ago essentially, the Jewish people were... You know, we're oddballs in the theological arena. Uh, we were persecuted, by the way, by the Romans as being atheists. Why? Because we believe in this one invisible God. An invisible God? Really? You can't see the God? Right? That's not a God at all. We have 30,000 gods, says Deo Cassius, the great Roman historian. That's what they had. You guys are atheists. The idea of the Jewish God was totally isolated in the, amongst the Jewish people. And then what do you find over the past 1,000 years? Like if you talk to people today, pretty much almost everyone you meet, if you talk to them about God, they're either talking about the same Jewish God that we believe in, right, or something which is close enough, uh, you know, within striking distance of the idea of one power, that, you know, one entity that has all the power consolidated within it. The idea of paganism is, is extinct, essentially. Now, I want to point out that the Christian definition of God that is, we would classify that under, under idolatry because that does, that's, not, that's not the Jewish God. But it's a lot closer than the Romans or the Greeks or the ancient Babylonians. It. You know, yeah, you can't see it exactly. It's much, much, much closer. But the past 2,000 years has been essentially an entire radical uh, phase of this process. Whereas it's not just us, it's, you know, it's the Christians and it's the Muslims, essentially. These two massive religions that you know, kind of assisted us in disseminating this idea. And by the way, where do the Muslims come from? And where do the Christians come from? Isaac. Esau. Esau. Right? Essentially, this is Abraham's son, the other son. 
and Abraham's grandson, the other grandson, those are the fathers of these other religions that are also, in their way, fulfilling the Abrahamic destiny. And the idea of Messiah, what's the Messiah? Where this idea becomes universal. So there's some Jewish leader we can call Messiah, but the idea is what we're talking about now, where there's a universal acceptance of the idea of God, and therefore a complete fix. Right? And, and that's, what the, that's, what the, that's what the world's about. That's the universal vision, the purpose of the world at large. Right? This entire thing is about a process, a world that was broken by design, of course, right? Uh, but it was... Something was lacking, and then we have 6,000 years to undo that. And we have mapped out in front of us what this 6,000 years looked like and how we, you know, there's various increments. There's Abraham and what he does and what he introduces as an individual, then maybe a family and swells into a tribe. And then we have the Torah. We're a nation now. You know, we have a guidebook. You know, and we have uh, what we say is going to be a lasting vision for the world, but, but starts at home you know, with our nation. And then the idea of Messiah is total uh, dissemination of this idea, make it totally universally known and accepted. And then we're, we're and we look at we, where we are today. We're very, very close. You know, who's left in the world? Where are the pagans left in the world? You know? And I would still argue, by the way, that even if a lot of people believe in God, maybe it's not as present as it ought to be. So we still have room to go, but we're we're very close. You're saying, Dennis? Well, I was. You know, you mentioned the Christians and the Muslims, and I feel like the Christians are a lot more veiled. Actually, the opposite is true. And the Muslims are the complete opposite. Well, I, I, yeah. the Christians are more accepting of that's recent. The uh, that's, that's very, very recent. I want you to just no, no. no I believe that do the some historical. Were persecuted the Jews, obviously, much, much, Roman much times, worse. Orders of magnitude worse. More. Yes, yes. But even though their their beliefs are that well, they believe that well. Was in the Jews, they still believe that the Jews were the ones that no, so this, uh, started everything. Uh, but the but the Muslims don't don't deny that either. No, but the Muslims are against the Judaism. No, the Muslims reject <laughs> no, Judaism. They believe no, no. there was the Muslims that okay, they so, heritage of. Uh, both of them kind of follow the same path um, theologically. Um, and or even ideologically, well, and that okay. is where they both accept the idea of the Jewish people being chosen and Abraham and whatnot. And but then they have the idea of, of replacement. Yes, where, replacement. Either theology. way, we're looking from but, the, from not from their perspective, from our perspective. Maimonides no, writes. No, 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 I believe that, but it's just that uh, the Jewish culture is, hasn't been really booming as much as. Okay. Christianity was but, the last thousand years, and now Islam is. Yeah, and but Judaism is we're still not, supposed to be booming. not. We're never going to be a big we're we're exactly. yeah. we're but, be but are you saying that we're insignificant? No. What I'm saying is that where is that two thousand years of Messiah coming to play? Well. If, so you're saying what's our role in Messiah? Is that the question? Yes, That's a good question. Yes. At what point does? Jews. That's a good question. That's a good. I like that question. I, I, what, this what what we got here is from Maimonides, where he he points out that the roles of of the Christians and the Muslims in Jewish philosophy is to help us, so to speak, in our in our, in our, in our yes. yes. Now, but I want to point out with the point that you may have said. I don't know if you said this or not, but that the Muslims are in fact a lot 
a lot closer theologically to Judaism than the than the Christians are. Um, as for example, in law, you're allowed to walk into a mosque and pray. Well, if they don't, I'm saying you shouldn't do it probably, but you're allowed to do it. But you can't do it in church because that's considered a house of idolatry because they give certain. Uh, divine qualities to JC. Period. That's right, yes. exactly. Um, so that's. Don't they, don't they do that to. Um... Well, Muhammad's only yeah. a prophet. Don't they he's do what? Prophet. Don't they do no, what? He's not a prophet, but he's not a thing. Right? No, no, no. Yeah, okay, so now I want to I wanna, I wanna stop for a second and do a nice callback to something we talked, spoke about some other time here. Uh, I don't remember if it was here or maybe it was somewhere else. Or someone else is in a different place in Cyprus. Or maybe I talked about, didn't even talk about it here. My, my mind's so frazzled and I apologize. Uh, but if you remember, did we do that story of, uh, of Rabbi Shimon on the, Rabbi Shimon who's coming out from his house of study? Did we do that here? I don't think we did. We find a, a commonality between Abraham, Moses, and Messiah. We're told in, in Jewish literature, Abraham rode on a donkey, Moses rode on a donkey, and Messiah is going to ride on a donkey. That obviously doesn't sound very significant. Uh, but then we find Jewish sources talking about the donkey that Abraham rode is the same donkey Moses rode and the same donkey that the Messiah will ride. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that there's actually an animal there somewhere trying, waiting for its turn? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. I'm not trying to say not. But I'm saying, but what it is clearly telling us that this is not just a narrative of transportation. There's some meaning behind the idea of them all running on a donkey. And we know that these are the representatives of the three different states. They have a link together. Uh, and they, they are representative of a crucial, universal idea. So what's so what so what is it telling us? You know what's what's the idea of, of of this of the donkey? So I want to share with you guys an idea. You, we'll see if we can debate it. I'm, I'm sure someone will ask a question that I'm ready for. So, so let's like like, like this. Is Jerusalem like a story with the donkey talking? Well, yeah, that's the question. It's Bilam, right? Exactly. That's next week's partial. Yes. That's male or female? Uh, usually, usually the uh, the donkey question is is in one minute, but you you're donkey you're ahead you're ahead of your you're peers. Of <laughs> so like this, uh, we know that in Hebrew, in Hebrew, the word or the etymology of a word underscores its meaning. Everyone with that idea? Good. The word three letter roots after the word chomer means physicality. Chomer means uh, the physical word. That's the word chomer. The word chamor means a donkey. And we know that every time a, a donkey is portrayed in, in Jewish writings of any sort, it is always representative of the most physical thing. The, the, the thing that's most distant away from the spiritual. And we find that Abraham, he rode on top of a donkey. Moses is the same. Messiah is the same. What this means is not just that that's how they traveled. And I would, I would argue that if Messiah, some guy came riding on a donkey, that I'm Messiah, we'd say maybe this guy's not all, all there, right? Um, but I think the idea of being on top of something, being dominant, being the rider, 
being the guide, being in control, having the harness and the reins over the physical, that, that, is, a, that, is, a, that is a depiction of perfection. When you are riding on top of it, you're dominant, you're in control. It's essentially, it's, it's changing the, the paradigm of the way we start off life and perhaps the way the world starts off. The world starts off that God is almost forgotten. It's not there, almost not there entirely. And all you see is the physical. And we start off life in the same manner. Like our soul is there, it's hidden within ourselves, but everything that we see and everything we encounter, everything we feel, everything that passes our consciousness is the physical. And our goal collectively as a species, as a universe, is to change that paradigm. That's what it's about. It's about bringing the idea of God into the world. But where is God? God's, God's hidden under this mountain of physicality. Well, you have, to subject, so you have to switch it around. You have to make sure that you're in control of your physicality, not the other way around. Thus, Abraham, right, he was the one who brought the idea of God into the world. What did he look like as an individual? He was someone who exposed his soul. Right? He was riding the physical. The physical was... Sub- subservient to him. Moses the same way, and Messiah the same way. <laughs> it's so sticky. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I didn't mean that. Uh, perhaps, perhaps what this is telling us is how we go about <laughs> How we go about doing this means there's, there's Tikkun Olam on the big picture, there's Tikkun Olam on our individual little world that we have within ourselves. We have to reverse the trend, right? If you start off life, you know, maybe you start off life and how do you look? You look like the donkey's on top of you, right? And then you're pulling, schlepping around the donkey with you. And your goal is maybe to become that you're perched on top. You're in control. Your soul, that is. Abraham, Isaac, Abraham, Moses... Messiah, they are representative of these major changes because they, as individuals, but also how they influence the world around them collectively, they demonstrated this point. They were in control. Now, now to your question, Bilam. What else did he do with his donkey? Do we know? He beat it. He beat it. What else did he do with his donkey? He was riding on top of it. You said he talked to him. He talked to the donkey. Okay. What else did he do with his donkey? Anyone knows? He was trying to control it, but he would. Go. He was trying to control it. He wasn't, he wasn't to control it. He was talking to it right. as well. And the Talmud says, and I'll try to say this in a somewhat cryptic way, that he had an intimate relationship uh, in the way you don't want to think about with his donkey as well. That's absolutely correct. <laughs> Now, what's the significance of that? I don't know. But I think what it's telling us is that he was not in any way in control of the donkey, above the donkey. Rather, he was kind of the same. He was enmeshed with the donkey. He was kind of below it. That's where the jihad came from. And, uh, that's a change. So, Rabbi, why is the donkey portrayed as a it's a good question. Um, I think perhaps it's a very physical thing. Like, you know, you hit the donkey. It has like no spirit to it, you know? It's yeah. well, I mean, why can't you, why can't you, well, for example, like a cow. 
the red heifer is one of the most spiritual animals. Why is a cow not a donkey? I don't know, that's a good question. Oh, but that's no an established sure. fact that the donkey, yeah, the homer, it's a good question. What, what, what about it? I don't, know, I don't know much about the meaning behind the chamor. We could do some research about that. But it's a good question. But it, but it is, it is there. It's, it's, it's widely sourced. It's not, I don't even find one source. Go ahead. Whatever it is, there's something about the donkey which represents that, and that's clear throughout Jewish writings. Torah. Torah, if you are to uh, crystallize what the Torah does to us, it helps us get on top of that donkey. It helps us be in control of our physical. It helps us moderate our physical, mitigate, attenuate our physical, limit it. If you look at the Torah, you see restriction, 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 restriction. That's what you see. Is that trying to make us miserable? Is that what it's really all about? Let's, let's think how we, could, how we could just torture humanity with the most uh, effective way. Is that what it is? No. It's, 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 it's guiding us, but it's guiding us to what? To, to, yes, to limit. Right? Restrictions. Restrictions on what? Restrictions on donkey domination. Every single one of the prohibitions, every single one of the 365 categories of prohibitions in the Torah are activities that we would want to do physically. And therefore, that's the conflict. That's why it's hard to observe the Torah because the Torah is telling us to do things that we want to do. Now, but why do we want to do it? Our soul, I assure you, does not want to do it. It's because the, the, the paradigm of who we are and who we start off life as is that we are much more, uh, we feel much closer to the influence of, of our physical. And that's, that's, that's broken. That's the broken world. We don't, we don't feel it's broken because we feel like that's us. I want it. Because that, that, that's how broken it is. We, we were conned into thinking that what I want is what my physicality wants. Because by design, our soul is buried so far deep, we don't even feel it. We shake a lulav when we eat matzah, we feel like we're chewing crackers. We, we don't feel it, you know? We feel, we, we, we have a tangible reality, and we have something which is, yeah, an idea that's in the sky, whatever, when the rabbi talks about it, maybe it made sense, maybe it doesn't, who knows. Our reality is our physical. That's what we start off life with. And that's why Torah is hard. You know? But Torah is trying to right the wrong. Torah is trying to fix the broken world within us, and by that, fricks the broken world around us. To expose our soul, to, to, uh, to uh, unpack it, to, uh, to, to find it, to, to, to take that, that that is hidden within ourselves, within the world at large, and expose it to the world. And that is to fix the world of the kingdom of God. That's what it's about. That's how we do it. We expose the kingdom of God. We expose our soul. Those two things parallel each other. Where did talk about the nation will uh, claim to be uh, basically to be a city, basically, uh, and you know, like follow the the last like you know, who's your god? Basically, that that you know, obviously that you are you know, the light to the world. Like, it, where does it does it? It talks about that. The what? I'm sorry. You're... Um, that. That uh, the clinging to basically to, to the Jewish people somewhere that it, it mentions about that, um, the tzitzit or something. Tzitzit. Right. 
I, I want to talk about a more a more um, I, I want to talk about myths of the uh, uh, to you to your point, but uh, in a more um, I, I mentioned that Abraham got one mitzvah, right? What was the one mitzvah that Abraham got? Circumcision. He got the circumcision, right? Now, uh, w- w- what are the blessings that we say by circumcision? Anyone knows what the blessings we say by the circumcision? Yeah. <laughs> well, we say a few different blessings. There's a okay, few so before. I, uh, didn't have to do it at the age of Abraham. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we say, we say uh, some of them, there's only one blessing that we say before the circumcision, which is the blessing that we say before any mitzvah that we do. Blessed are you, Hashem. Hashem, the same preamble. Al-Hamila, on doing the brismila, on the circumcision. Immediately after the circumcision, the father of the child says the blessing, a blessing that we have no... We, it has no uh, uh, parallel in any in any blessing. Baruch Hashem to enter the child in the covenant of Abraham. Thus, this mitzvah is done. Is the first mitzvah given to the Jewish people, given to Abraham. It's the mitzvah on which God tells him, "Your nation, your children will be the the, 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 the nation." Right? It's the mitzvah on which kind of our role as the chosen people solidified. And it's the first mitzvah we do as a child. And we say by the mitzvah, we say we, the blessing that we say is, we're now entering the covenant, the special fraternity of Abraham. Um, the circumcision um, mitzvah, was that first with Abraham or was it later introduced to the Jewish nation in like Deuteronomy, right? Yeah, uh, well, yes. It's, 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 you want know if it's repeated? Sorry? I right. thought the first one was for Abraham, the second one was for... It wasn't, it was, it's repeated in, uh, in Leviticus. Leviticus. Uh, well, yeah, the question is, some mitzvahs that were given, uh, yeah, but, but were not repeated, means the question is, like, which mitzvahs are, are part of the Noahide mitzvahs and which ones uh, are not? So that blessing, it says to enter the covenant of Abraham, is interesting, because that relates it to covenant that he made with God, but we don't say the covenant of God. You know, right, forever. but that means the, the, the covenant that Abraham had with God. That's what we're saying. Yes. Let the Talmud ask your question. Good question. Well, here's the thing, we know that the, that, that, that the Muslims do circumcise. Most Christians also as well. But no, they don't have the same mitzvah. It's a, it's a Jewish mitzvah. It's only a Jewish mitzvah. So if it's a Jewish mitzvah, so yes, they have a role, like a like ideological role, uh, but they're not they're not you know they're not part of the same relationship that Abraham. Abraham, Abraham no, Abraham, well, Abraham, Abraham, Abraham circumcised his kids as well, all of them. Yes, but that that, that, that doesn't well, perpetuate. That's right. Uh, the Yes, because they, they link themselves to Ishmael. That's, what, that's why they used to do, historically, they did it at the age of 13, because that's so, how old yeah, Ishmael said, was. But God said the covenant would only go through Abraham's seed. Right. Yes, Jacob. That's right. Either way... Ishmael was not his seed, though. Ishmael was not... It was not, yeah, it was not Sarah's seed, but it was his seed. But it was still Abraham's seed. That's right. It was still his seed, but it, it came through him and Sarah. He said that Sarah will have a child, and that's how we'll yes, come. And he said, oh, I'm going to have it with handmaid. What is the difference made between that? But God told him, you're going to have it with Sarah. Sarah's going to have a child. Her, he never said, he be Yitzchak Yitzchak Chazara, right? Because yeah, in, in Isaac, that will, Isaac will be, will be your legacy. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so, 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 going back to the question. Go ahead. It 
sense. And that it was sounds like that yeah. commandment was made just to uh, Abraham. Well, no, I, I said, people. well, to his, to but the commandment that was given to Abraham, you know, we mentioned that Abraham kept the entire Torah. But even well, why did he keep that part of the Torah? Had to get circumcised. You know, but the Torah that was given to Abraham, um, that doesn't mean, I mean, that was continued on by his family, you know. The, the blessing is just unique, how it mentions it's a unique a, blessing. Abraham and not God. Well, no, it, 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 it does start off with Baruch HaTah Hashem, it's the same preamble that we have to all blessings. But means that the relationship that Abraham had with, 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 uh, with God and that special covenant, that special connection, what makes us chosen, the chosen people, right? that is solidified uh, on day eight of, uh, of a child's life. Uh, which is interesting. Uh, now, uh, another interesting thing that uh, I think is uh, maybe a little striking, uh, and that is that we find two places in the Talmud, actually one of them is in Midrash, one of them is in the Talmud, that talk about Abraham sitting at the doorstep no, go and guess at the end. I don't know. Uh, we'll continue your sentence. <laughs> of Abraham sitting at the entrance of Gehenna and doesn't allow anyone with a circumcision to enter. And if someone sinned so much that he has to enter, well then they have to undo the circumcision. So they have to take another foreskin and put it on and then they can go in. Which, this is a, a very interesting, whatever. Either, what, I want, what I want to take away from that uh, <laughs> is the fact that, once again, our circumcision leans us to Abraham. We're part via our circumcision and we're linked to the fraternity of Abraham and therefore we have a special role of chosen people and maybe there's no room for chosen people or people that ha- are part of this mission in what Gehenim is. Maybe. I, I'm just throwing that out there but I think it's a very interesting uh, uh, piece of, of Jewish of Jewish uh, teaching. So why do we circumcise? Well, what's that all about? It's just it's just. Son of covenant. Son of covenant. It's just, in, in it's, the flesh. We're, it's we're just. Of, it's part of the. It's a physical sign of an inward. Uh, so we're, we're just we're just branding ourselves. Is that what it is? It's a clean thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's also true, but that, I think that's yeah, ancillary. It's a sexual Okay, so you guys are saying you guys are all saying very good things. I found in Jewish writings five different reasons why we circumcise. There's maybe more, but I found five. So what's the number one? Number one. Let's start with number one here. But I want I want to say how these all these five essentially underscore the entire discussion we've had till now. So let's start with number one. Number one is we are not perfect. A child is born, and you count the fingers and you count the toes. And you, you look at the ears, and you look at the chin, and thank God everything's perfect. And then you think, this kid is perfect. Mm-hmm. And then, then they're one and two, and you're like, whoa, goodness gracious, there's a lot of room to work so here. how are females not perfect? Uh, females is a good question. Maybe females are less, are less imperfect. Maybe females, it's a good question. Well, let's, let's, finish, let's finish this point. As long as we uh, on the same page, nobody's perfect, let's go on. Yeah. <laughs> so, God is both we, female and male, but mostly female. <laughs> so, there is an importance that we have to realize, even right away at the beginning, that our life is about perfecting ourselves. 
And even something as, as basic as our body is something which even that's not perfect. And we're showing in our body that you should know that this life is what's it all about. It's about trying to fix what is broken. And then not only with you, not only as an individual, but as a community and as a society and as a family and as a nation and as a, as a, and as a species. That's what it's about. Thus we demonstrate at the beginning of the child's life, they need a person. Now, I want to say a, a point that uh, once you're going to make it granular about man and wife, or man, man, and, man and woman, that is, um, the real answer to your question is that Adam, man, was created only one. Well, where's the woman, right? So it later it was parsed out. But uh, what's clear is that Adam, the original Adam, was both male and female. Thus, we say with the whole idea of... of uh, the whole idea of of finding a spouse and you know one plus one equals one, that's kind of finding your other half. What is your other half? You heard that your other half? You heard that? More male or female? I don't know. I, I, well, probably one side came out of a man. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. And he was already 50-50, then I would say he was seventy-five yeah, well, the idea is is that you know it's it's if we look at at, at a man and, and a wife as one unit, then yes, there's certain elements uh, that each contribute. You know, there's some misses that women have only. Well, what do you mean? Men don't need to perfect themselves? Of course, everyone needs to perfect themselves. You know, but is the mitzvah of, of circumcision is that a man's mitzvah? No, it's a Jewish mitzvah. You know, so it's it's done for the boy, and some mitzvahs are done for the girl, and that's and that's fine. But my point that I wanted to say uh, is the fact that we view a man and a spouse as being two parts of one whole. Right? They're not. They're not. You know, they're not. Uh, they're not exclusive of each other. Uh, they're they're complementary of each other. Thus, if if a man has it and a woman doesn't have it, it doesn't mean that. The woman doesn't have it. It means that the woman's manly half has it, or whatever. Okay. Either way, the, the woman that's, doesn't become perfect until she marries. No, whatever. Because the circumcision for the woman is the breaking of the hymen. Ah, that's deep. That's deep, right? There. That's low dirty. But that is gone. deep. <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna, ha- I'm gonna have to edit that out. Just saying. Are you recording this? I am. That was Dennis. Oops, sorry. Uh, no. No. No, that was Sender. Okay. Okay. Either go. way. Um, so we have reason number one. Let's move on to reason number two. This is from the Ramban. The Ramban says that if you look at the location of uh, of the circumcision, it's at a very, uh, it's at the kind of the epicenter of of man's challenges in life, and it's and it's the area where they're their donkey, so to speak, their Yetzirah is going to reign supreme, uh, more, almost more than anyone else. And specifically there, God says, I want to make a covenant with you because they're at the point of the greatest contention that you, you're going to have with your body and soul. Right? I want you to remember, uh, there is where the battle lies and there is where you need to stand up uh, for, for God, so to speak, or for your soul. Number three we find uh, is the idea of, we know circumcision is a two-part process. There is the removal of the foreskin, and then there's the exposing of what's called in Jewish literature the atar, which means the crown. Uh, if I get into a graphic, uh, 
that's the, 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 part of, uh, the part that's exposed is a crown. Why a crown? And we find many, many, many references to the idea of circumcision being, uh, being a representative uh, of the idea of, of what Judaism is really trying to teach us at large. And that is that our responsibility is to reveal the crown of God in the world. It's about removing the riffraff, removing, A, the, the, the physicality, taking that off, and now exposing the crown. And that, and that part is, uh, is, is, is the completion, so to speak, of the process. Uh, number four, we find uh, about King David. King David's in the bathhouse, and he's depressed. Why is he, de- why is he depressed? Because he says, now I am bereft of mitzvahs. There's no mezuzah on the door. I'm not wearing my tzitzit. I'm not wearing my tefillin. I can't study Torah here. What do I have? And then he says, he looked at his circumcision. And he says, oh, there's one mitzvah that never escapes me. And that's idea, like you mentioned, the idea of, 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 of constantly having a mitzvah that's always with you and that's, that, that, you know, that cannot, uh, you cannot lose it. You, you know, it's, it's, it's something you always have. And lastly, like I did, like you guys mentioned, that's, that's weird with Jews, and this is the brand of a Jew, and this is the Abrahamic fraternity, uh, and this is the mitzvah that the Gentiles uh, throughout the, uh, the centuries have banned more than anyone else. We know that in the uh, this past century, the 20th century, in Soviet, Soviet Russia, was, you were banned uh, on pain of death sometimes if you gave your child a circumcision. Uh, we know that uh, Hadrian in the second century of the Common Era, and uh, Antiochus in the second century before the Common Era. But they just tried to ban it just recently. And just recently, and it's so interesting. Like, why, why, you know, why don't they ban other things? It seems like, well, they do. Some of them they have done as well, uh, but this is the one thing that somehow irks, for whatever reason, just wrinkles the Gentiles, and it's it's it bizarre. The Gentiles mean the Gentile who who want to oppress the Jewish people. And it's, it's an interesting thing. You find it again and again uh, throughout history. Um, and we know that Jews, there were some Jews that even wanted to be like everyone else. They would undergo uh, circumcision removal uh, surgery, which is inadvisable. Uh, uh, and actually, interestingly, I just thought of this right now, but it's, it's, um, Maimonides has a list of people that have no portion of the world to come. And in it, he brings a laundry list of all the greatest sinners that you could possibly imagine. You know, the worst sinners. And at the end, he writes, and the people that reverse their circumcision. Moshe Orlam, people that reverse their circumcision. And the question is, like, what, what's, you know, what's so bad about that? You know, perhaps what they're saying is, is that we don't want to be part of the Jewish people. Right? We don't want to have a stake in this eternal mission of the Jewish people. Okay, so you don't want, you don't have. Right? If, if you're saying, I'm not, I'm not part of this, right? you are disassociating yourself from, you're taking off the, the, you know, the jersey, you're, you're taking off the star, uh, star is a bad example. No, no, right? it's worse, you're reversing it. Right, exactly, you're saying, I don't want to be part of this. Okay, so you're not part of it. So what does it look like if you're not part of this? Well, you've got no portion of the world to come because you're not, you're not part of this mission of bringing about the, the world to come. You're saying you're out. It's not by dint of the sin, as if the sin is so great. It's by dint of the expression of disinterest in the mission. Of rebellion. Yeah. Either way, these are the five reasons. I want to say that essentially these five reasons are all 
different elements of what we discussed tonight. Number one, the reason we're not perfect. Yes, that's what life's all about. We're in a broken world. Collectively, the entire world itself is broken, and this is the process of undoing it. Right? And we demonstrate that with the, with, 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 with the circumcision. We're, 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 we're about fixing. And how do we fix? Right. How do you undo the model of the way it started off? You know, it started, What's the default? The default status of the world is broken. The default status of human is broken. Why is it broken? Because God's not there. Why is not God there? Because God, the, the, the influence that's going to bring you to God is in your soul. And where is that? I don't know. It's buried somewhere deep, 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 deep within you. Within you. You're broken as well. And how do you undo that? How do you switch it? Well, you have to start evening the playing field. Well, how do you do that? By suppressing your physical. Once you do that, well, you weaken the physical, and, and as a result, you strengthen the spiritual. As we said about Torah, Torah is about, it's, it's all restrictions, a lot of restrictions, but what are the restrictions directed at? At restricting the free reign of your physical, of your materialist, of, 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 your, of, your, of, of your donkey. That's what it's about. Right. Okay, so, and then the get to the Ramban that, that, that Ben quoted. It's specifically at the crucial point where your donkey, so to speak, is at the height of its powers. This one area in your life where you're most likely to fail, where you're most likely to feel the, the influence of your physicality, where the greatest challenges are going to lie. Specifically there, that, it, it, it's, it's like this, it, it, it's pointing at, it's, it, it's, it's directing us towards the realization of this is what it's about. It's, it's we have to stand up to our internal donkey, to our internal influence, but, and we have to limit it. We have to suppress it. By doing that, we'll accomplish what? Well, we'll bring out the crown of God. We'll expose the crown of God. That, that's what we'll do. Yeah? Once, you, once you follow this process, that, that's what it's about. That, what does it look like? You fix the world. Fix the world with what? With the kingdom of God. What's the end result? What's, what's the aftermath of this, of this 6,000 year process? You know what it is? It's the kingdom of God is exposed and available and, and visible to everyone. And you know what? This is something really important. This is something so important. This is something that you have to have with you at all times. Because essentially this one mitzvah is in one fell swoop. It is everything that really life's all about. It's the insight into the, this whole big picture that we have. Okay, so if men have the circumcision, how do women live with this one mitzvah? Or what is this one mitzvah? Uh, you asked this question already. This, we already went through this already, Dennis. We said, yes, it's not, the, the fact that women doesn't have a circumcision, that, that, that doesn't mean that she's not uh, responsible to take the lessons of the, of the circumcision. Yes. But what is the physical that they, she lives with? Women don't need the physical as much as, as, much as men do because women... Tend to be yeah, more spiritual. Every month, it's the uh, time bomb. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 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 no more. Yeah, there's that. Wow. There's that. <laughs> A reminder every month. Wow. Yay! Question answered. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, but uh, traditionally, we know that uh, historically, women have always been more spiritual. So I would say that this very tangible, uh, fi- even physical, it means it's, it's a bizarre mitzvah. It's a mitzvah that is a physical thing, so to speak. 
Uh, I, I think it's it's the men the men need it uh, much more than the women. The men are more likely to be influenced by it, uh, and more li- and they need it more. They're all emotional. And you look at the mitzvahs of women. Mitzvahs of women are are, are are usually directed to be more emotional. Um, so yes, it's 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 by design where this is this is optimal. I think just from women going through their male child's going through that mitzvah is enough for them. They have enough, yeah. yeah. It's a it's kind but. of could be kind of stressful. Uh, so that so that's that. This is how we. Uh, this is um, if if we were to be asked the questions, um, what does it mean to be chosen people? You know, well the answer is yes, we're chosen. Why are we chosen? By whom? Well, we're chosen by God. But why were we chosen? We were chosen because Abraham chose. Abraham was the one. He was the one. And it was not random. We chose. I'm sorry? We chose. Well, yes, we're Abraham's Abraham, descendants. Yes, yes that, that's absolutely right. says so if God. that we chose God and we chose the responsibilities that go with this, uh, this mission. Which, by the way... God promised us we will never disappear. Even though the factors are all in place to make us disappear. We're a small number. Uh, everyone hates us. We are dispersed. We don't have a national homeland. We don't to exile. That is all the ingredients for us to totally disappear. In fact, you have these great civilizations, the great empires, that had the exact opposite. No one hated them. Everyone loved them. They were everywhere. They were dominant. They had control. They had power. They had stability. They had everything. And then they're gone. Those are in the like the Romans and the Greeks. And the, right? They're gone. <laughs> we, we, where are the ancient Assyrians? Where are the Babylonians? They're gone. Right. You know, and they were never dispersed from their land. You know, because we have a lasting responsibility for the world. And that's why, despite being, uh, having all the, the debt stacked against us, all the factors that ought to contribute to our disappearance, they're all gone. Right? They, they, you know, they, they, I'm saying they're all gone. They're all gone, but, but they're ineffective in trying to make us disappear. And no matter how hard you try, and a lot of people have tried very hard, uh, yet, you know, this kind of brings, opens another question, yet I would even make the argument that maybe the reason why we're hated so much, maybe that, in a way, does contribute in our... You know continuity. Maybe the fact that we always retain our character, whether we're different or we're the same as everyone else, right, that is going to engender reality where we're different. And when you look at the Torah, so you mentioned. I'm sorry. Go ahead. But not only that. Not, not only that. The 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 threat of annihilation keeps you different. And ironically, this is, a, this is a terrible irony, but the more the Jewish people want to be the same as everyone else and essentially repudiate the Abrahamic mission, there is where the anti-Semitism springs forth from, which is, which is just mind-blowing. You know, you don't have to look very far. You know, the greatest genocide in, in or the greatest, to say greatest, but the worst, most horrific genocide in all of human history happened in the place where the Jews were most similar, most indistinguishable uh, from, from the Gentiles. It's remarkable. Like, that you would think that if the Jewish people are so irritating to the Gentiles, 
why would they get irritated in Germany where Jews were almost indistinguishable? You know, uh, temples in, in, in Germany were no different than churches. The Jews weren't this sniveling, uh, short, and long, crooked noses. All that, they, they, what did it exist? All the anti-Semitic literature, uh, the portrayals of Jews, that was, it was nonsense. And how did that all just explode in progressive Germany? It's one of the great mysteries. But if you, in this, with this attitude, with this perspective, and this has been the Jewish perspective, and even before the Holocaust, you know, we don't know any Jewish source about, about, about anti-Semitism. It talks about the fact that if we decide to abandon our mission and essentially say, we're no different, we're not chosen, we're not special, we don't have a, a mission that's vital for, for humanity, for the universe, we're not the stewards of, of, of change. We're not the representatives of God in the world. No, we're no different. We're like everyone else. What do we do? We're abandoning our post. And at that point, there's going to be something, some force that's going to push us to say, you know, you are different. And that being different, when it's foisted upon us by the, by the Gentiles, can be very horrific. You know, and, and very traumatic, as we, as we all know. But we'll still survive. And ironically, those kind of experiences, and they have, we've had many, maybe, maybe not as many of them on the scale as the Holocaust, uh, but we've had many. And you look at, look at the past hundred, thousand years of Jewish history in Europe. You know? How many different cities were, we, were, were the Jewish communities liquidated from? Uh, liquidated. Uh, how many different countries were, were we kicked out of from? You know that uh, uh, France kicked us out of, uh, out of France for hundreds and hundreds of years. Spain, of course, Portugal, England. Right? Uh, Shakespeare never met a Jew. He never in his life saw a Jew. There, were not a, there wasn't a single Jew living in England right? from the 1300s. We weren't allowed to until the 1800s. It's insane. You know? Uh, once again. Ooh. Yeah, well, I wouldn't quite compare that, but... Um, Either way, that's that, guys. Um, so we're chosen by God. We're chosen for the mission because Abraham started it. We're going to continue it. Uh, the Torah is our guide to do that. Uh, what it does for us uh, is enable us to create the model where everything's changed and it's, it's fixed. And as individuals, we're fixed. You know, and as the world as at large is fixed. I would say, by the way, Rosh Hashanah. The holiday of Rosh Hashanah. What's it all about? It's all about this idea, the entire holiday. We talk, we, we talk about it more maybe uh, when the high holidays come up. But it is about the idea of God's supremacy and how as Jews, that's our mission. And that's, that's, and that's our reason for existence. And that's why we're going to survive another year. And that's what it's all about. It's the shofar blowing is about God's kingdom. It's uh, uh, the, the judgment is about God's kingdom. It's the anniversary of the kingdom of God. It, it's, it's, it underscores the idea of why, you know, why, what's the role of humans, and that is to bring out the idea of God, even though we're designed to not do that. Thus, the birthday of mankind is essentially the birthday of God's kingdom, because only then is it possible for God to have a kind of independent verification of his, of his existence, you know? And that's essentially the purpose of the entire creation. And it's our birthday as well. You know? So we can reinvent the world, so to speak, 
and fits the world, but fits ourselves as well. Both broken worlds come to pass on, on Rosh Hashanah. So that's that, guys. Um, there's more. There's more to this. There's a lot more. There's a lot more to this. But I, I think this kind of does uh, expose us to uh, kind of what it means to Tikkun Olam. I think that unfortunately there has been a, I would say, a narrowing of, of, of definitions in Tikkun Olam. Uh, who here thinks of picking up cigarette butts from the beach as Tikkun Olam or going to the uh, food bank? Like We've been told that any like, good deed that you do for someone that's less fortunate than you, that's Tikkun Olam. And I'm not saying that that's not. Part of it. It's part of it, but that's not what it is. I speak to young people, and they say, "Oh, it's good, Yeah, I went to the food bank last year. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know? That's good, but I, oh, yeah, I spent. Someone told me he spent three weeks picking up cigarette butts on in, in <laughs> on, a, on a beach uh, in uh, in somewhere in South America. Like, it means because there ha- there is a narrative that exists today that the means doing good. We see it means fixing the world, define it. Fixing the world. It's much more expansive, much more exhaustive, much more comprehensive than just one now. Yes, of course. Look at, look at Abraham. Read, read Abraham's story in the Torah. What's Abraham's story in the Torah? How was he presented? How was he, uh, how was he configured as a character in the Torah? Anyone knows? What, what is his primary characteristic in the Torah? By, by strangers, laying strangers in kindness. So, kindness. Yeah. Uh, he is presented as the paragon of kindness. We say Chesed la Avraham. Kindness is for Abraham, and we see the stories about Abraham. Abraham, Abraham. Two days after a circumcision, he's out there. He's waiting for guests, and he goes crazy when the guests come. He tells God, "Wait a second, right?" He tells God, "I'll be back with you, right? Just hold on. I got to take ten to these three pagans." Uh, he's the one who prays for Sodom and Gomorrah, even though they were the antithesis of what he represented, but he prays for them. He cares for the people that he, even that he, that he disagrees with. Uh, he, how he went to battle for his, for his brother-in-law, uh, or nephew, uh, uh, Lot. Abraham is presented, and, and what does it say about Abraham's faith in the Torah? What does it give us about his narrative of discovering God and, and debating that? Huh? But it doesn't tell us the story. We meet Abraham, when you open the Torah, you meet Abraham at the age of 75 when he's told to go to Israel. That's when you meet him. What happened before that? Well, we want to hear the story about him and his father and him and his neighbors and him and the, the debate club. That's what we know. That, that's the story with Abraham going around from town to town lecturing. That, that's what he's famous for. I ask you guys, what is he famous for? He's famous for his monotheism. Where's the talk about his monotheism? His discovery of it, his perfecting of it, his analysis, his logic, his reasoning, his arguments, his deductions. None of that's in the Torah. What's in the Torah? His kindness. I think that there's a deep lesson here. I think that it's linking the tikkun olam at large to the behavior that results. I think what it's telling us, perhaps, or maybe one of the things that it's telling us is that Abraham, he started with faith. He started with his monotheism. He started with tikkun olam at large. And what did that bear out on on a behavioral level? How did he act? Kindness is the result of that. That's, I think, what it's telling us is that there's the mothership. 
Like there's the big picture to Kulam, and then there's everything else that is kind of related to, but it's also, but, but it's re- a result of of this attitude. So I think that yes, of course, being kind and helping, helping the less fortunate, all that's part of it. And you know what? The Torah is about that. The Torah gives us 613 mitzvahs, a lot of different mitzvahs. You know, there's the first mitzvah, and I think the first mitzvah more than anything else tells us about you know what the goal of all the mitzvahs are, and the first mitzvah is circumcision. You know, we have a mitzvah before that, that's be fruitful and multiply, but that wasn't given to the Jewish people, or even the forbear of the Jewish people, it was given to Adam, which is interesting. Now, the first Jewish mitzvah is that of circumcision. Well, the last mitzvah is right in the Torah. I would say that if the Torah is bookended by these mitzvahs, it's probably because it's, it's telling us circumcision, that's Abraham's mitzvah, and all the, the meaning that we, that we deduce from that, that's really, that's the end goal. You know, that's the end game. All the mitzvahs are contributing towards that as well, of course. You know? but, that, but, that, but that's the, the, the big picture. And I would say perhaps the mitzvah of writing, writing the Torah, you know, if someone were to write the entire Torah, like it means to actually invest your life in that. You know, to write a Torah, you're talking about 304,805 letters, lots of letters. You know, it's a, it's a very uh, immersive uh, and protracted mitzvah that involves... You know, getting uh, uh, dozens upon dozens of of hides of kosher animals and preparing it. Right? It means investing your life in this in, in this idea. Perhaps you know that's what it's about as well. It's telling you, yes, the, there's the there's the big picture and there's the you know the process of tikkun olam. But maybe at the end, it's telling us, yes, it's something you have to kind of really invest a lot of time. I don't know. That's a, that's a theory. But either way, I think uh, we can safely say that tikkun is much, much more expansive and broad than something, than picking up cigarette butts or helping at the, at the, at the dodge shelter, food, you know, going to, going to, going to make, uh, uh, going to the, um, uh, the George R. Brown Convention Center and helping prepare uh, turkeys for, for, the, for, the food, uh, for the food banks, right? That's nice, you know, but there's a much bigger picture here. And it deals with cosmic forces and what God has, has planned, and it's all linked together, and it all makes a whole abundance of sense once you hear it. Yes. Way more than you just explain it to us. No, we just did it. <laughs> no, 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 no. What you, what you told us basically was that it was way more than that. <laughs> yeah, well, because of the, the details. Yeah, well, we got the overview. Yes, yes. So that's that, guys. Is any questions? I know. I, 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 I feel like if I ended the class an hour or an hour ago, I'd get a lot more questions. And everyone just says, oh, it's 10 o'clock, I'm done. we're like, whoa. <laughs> Either way, guys, uh, I guess we'll see you next week. Is that the plan? Yeah. Uh, so announcements next week is at Tom's place. Ooh, nice. Sunday stay up. He likes it there. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first place that I came oh, to teach. That's right. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh.